From WDEV, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Thanks for joining us. It's Wednesday, October 25th, and we've been planning this show all week long, so stick with us because we're going to explore a wide variety of subjects, some of them very tough and others joyful. We start today with the tough stuff. Writer Joe Sexton and Seven Days are breaking a, a heartbreaking story today about the history and abuse that took place at the Woodside Juvenile Detention Facility in Essex, Vermont, before closing in 2020. These are explosive findings, and we have Joe on the air with us with uh, coming up in a couple of minutes. Following that, the Commissioner of the State Department of Children and Families, Chris Winters, will join us to respond to the story and discuss what his department is doing in the future about it. At 10 a.m., we move to the garden, specifically a forest garden, and speak to the author of a new book on how to plant an edible forest garden, maintain it, and make it part of your lifestyle. That author, Danny Baker, joins us at 10 from her home on an island in the St. Lawrence River. And at 10.30, an update on flood recovery in central Vermont. We'll focus a bit on Barry and Waterbury with the folks working on that. It's a big show and a tight timeline, so let's get to it. Uh, we're gonna, we're joined right now by the author and writer Joe Sexton to talk to us about his story. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Well, welcome back, actually. You've been here before. Um, let's, Joe, let's start at the beginning, uh, cause most of us, I think, you know, uh, d- don't know what Woodside was, and then we'll get to what happened there. What was the Woodside Detention Facility? So, um, it opened in 1986. It was Vermont's only secure facility for adolescent children and adolescents. Um, and it had been born out of a, what I think everybody today concedes was a kind of a hysteria about crime and youth crime after a, a, a truly awful um, incident in earlier in the decade uh, that involved the sexual assault and uh, of two uh, 12-year-old girls, one of whom was left dead. The the perpetrators of that were two boys, 16 and 15. Um, and so there was a great outcry that, um, you know, Vermont needed to have uh, a secure facility where troubled and, and even violent kids could be sent. Um, ultimately, when it opened, uh, two, you could, kids could arrive at, at Woodside in two different ways. One, is through the criminal justice system somehow, if they had run afoul of the law. Um, and two, if uh, they had been deemed a threat to themselves or others, chiefly as a consequence of mental illness. Um, when it was initially conceived, the hysteria was such that, uh, according to Judith Christensen, who was Woodside's first uh, clinical director, um, they, the Vermont wanted 130 beds. Um, Judith calls that crazy. Um, and it's, you know, I think probably most people would agree it was. Ultimately, it was a facility for 30 kids. It housed boys and girls from the age of 10 to 17. And Joe, so tell us what ha- tell us what your story is going to say today. And you're obviously going to include a, a, a description of a young lady named Grace Welch. But tell us what happened there. Well, uh, in many ways, what I've tried to do is, is to sort of pull together the historical record um, and through telling Grace's story, um, give some voice to these children. 
So, you know, the the problems at Woodside, which came to, you know, involve the violent restraint of kids there, uh, the use of seclusion and isolation such that it amounted to solitary confinement, um, kids left in cells, um, you know, with their own waste piling up in unflushed toilets, um, you know, kids, you know, out of boredom and, um, and distress, uh, self-harming. Um, so all of that was, in many ways, known uh, to the people in charge of Woodside. Um, Woodside ultimately was a facility that reported to the Department of Children and Families, which was a fundamental oddity in some ways. And I think people who have, you know, uh, examined what took place at Woodside point out that, you know, it was a, essentially in some ways a correctional facility being run by a child welfare agency. Um, and I think that many people think that was sort of set up um, for disaster. Um, anyway, the... Um, uh, but there had been, you know, court filings as early as, you know, 2017. Um, kids had filed formal grievances complaining about their mistreatment um, uh, at Woodside. And ultimately, in 2019, uh, Disability Rights Vermont filed a, a pretty sweeping federal lawsuit um, accusing uh, Woodside uh, and the Department of Children and Families of, you know, uh, uh, of irreparably harming children at the facility. Um, at, initially, uh, DCF and uh, lawyers with uh, T.J. Donovan's attorney general's office defended, um, you know, Woodside and what was happening there. Uh, they, they called them isolated cases and uh, noted that there were reforms underway. Um, and ultimately, there was a hearing held in federal court in uh, July of 2019. Uh, and at the end of it, a federal judge, Jeffrey Crawford, deemed that, in fact, irreparable harm was being done to kids at Woodside um, and issued a, a, a temporary injunction that would commit, you know, uh, he called it an institution in need of systemic reform. And, Joe, one of the more damning uh, things you write in the story, which comes out today, I understand, is that uh, – this, you call it the circle of knowledge, was wide, that adults in positions of power knew about this, what was going on at Woodside. These are legislators, governors, attorneys general, not to mention the director of the institution, uh, lawyers, uh, everybody who seemed to be in positions of power to do something about this either – turned away because they didn't have the right power or they were, you know, can you talk about that? Why didn't somebody do something? You know, I, I hope that's the question that the story, you know, begs for, uh, you know, the people of Vermont. Um, and, you know, for different people in different parties, there were different levels of knowledge or whatever. Um, but, you know, the, the, Commissioner of the Department of Children and Families, Ken Schatz, was named as a defendant um, when Kerry Johnson, uh, a lawyer with the Defender General's Juvenile Unit, began to file one after another court cases seeking immediate relief for these children and protective orders for them. Um, the, you know, Ken Schatz, who unfortunately, you know, 
opted never to sit down and talk with me, despite, you know, repeated invitations to do so. Um, you know, I have the clear sense that Ken thinks he has a story to tell about how this could have happened. Um, you know, and one of the, you know, kind of uh, exasperating curiosities of everyone recognized Woodside was not an appropriate place for many of these children, um, you know, who often suffered from, you know, acute mental health uh, issues. Um, it wasn't set up to care for them. There, you know, it was not a psychiatric hospital. Um, and, you know, to give Ken some credit, he, you know, he was quite frank with the legislature um, about, you know, what the limits of what could be done for these children at Woodside was. Um, but as best I can tell, he was never fully frank um, with the legislature about the extent of the problems in one uh, part of, of Woodside, which was known as the North Unit. It was four sort of grim isolation cells where kids were sent, uh, theoretically because they might be a harm to themselves or others. Kids regarded it as a place they were sent to be punished um, and, you know, sort of, you know, devolve, uh, you know, into real, you know, trouble. Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, the, there were judges heard cases. There, there were, you know, six, at, at minimum six judges who had cases brought by the Defender General's office come before them alleging, you know, serious claims of, of abuse and mistreatment. Um, and often those cases would get dismissed after a child who was the subject of the case would be released from Woodside and the case would be declared moot and, you know, the judges would, you know, be left unable to act. Um, so the, the knowledge that Woodside was in many respects a kind of failed institution for many of the children who were sent there was understood in Vermont at almost every level. Um, and I think for me, the story um, asks this question, right? Is this the best Vermont could do? I neglected to describe Joe's bio. Um, he is not your ordinary uh, reporter. He is a former editor at the New York Times who uh, led two teams that won Pulitzer Prizes. And he was a senior editor at, uh, uh, of investigative reporting at the nonprofit uh, ProPublica. But this piece is being published in seven days today. Joe, could you tell us more about Grace Welch and the arc of her story? Yeah. So, you know, in all of the uh, sort of accounts that existed in, in the public record uh, about the kids who had been in the North Unit at Woodside, they were all sort of, you know, referred to anonymously, Juvenile 1 or Juvenile 8 or, or only by their uh, initials, uh, DH, or in Grace's case, GW. So Grace Welch was a kid who was born and raised um, in rural Vermont in Orange County. Um, the uh, uh, Her dad was one of uh, what were locally known as the Welch boys, um, who are hardworking uh idiosyncratic uh, uh, loggers and machine operators. Um, you know, it was a very, I think, gritty um, rural upbringing. Um, there were some, you know, uh, you know, flashes of, of poverty and struggle. Um, but she had a very loyal family, um, her mother and dad and 
uh, her grandmother, Kathy Welch. Um, and, you know, from a pretty young age, Grace had, you know, had some real issues. Um, and she struggled in school initially. Um, Kathy, her grandma, says that the local elementary school in, in Orange, um, you know, detained her in what was known as a blue room in grade school, which was a windowless uh, room where kids who might be behavioral problems would, were brought. Um, DCF would take Grace into their custody at age 11. Um, the, the available records suggest that there were issues about potential neglect. Um, Grace's family argues there was really just uh, some confusion about Grace's medication regimens. Um, Anyway, uh, in, in the subsequent months and years, Grace would bounce between, uh, you know, uh, specialized schools, out-of-state facilities for her mental health care, um, and ultimately, at age 13, she winds up for the first time at Woodside. Uh, and what happens to her there? She has she's there in two different states in, in 2016. Um, and, it, you know, according to court filings and grievances filed by uh, Carrie Johnson, who would come to represent Grace, um, she was kept naked in, in isolation. Uh, staff had to uh, use, put vapor rub in their nose when they entered her uh, cell where she was being kept. The stink of, you know, waste was so profound. Um, she was sent to court um, dirty and smelling badly. Um, she put on an extraordinary amount of weight as a consequence of both medications and inactivity. Uh, she was forcibly restrained uh, at least 30 times during the course of her stay. And she's a 13-year-old child. Um, and, you know, uh, Carrie Johnson actually, you know, met with the senior leadership at Woodside. It was run uh, by a guy named Jay Simons, who was a former uh, corrections boss who had run the prison, the adult prison in Newport. Um, he had no particular background in working with adolescents, much less traumatized or troubled adolescents. Um, an expert would later testify uh, in a sworn affidavit that Simons was completely unqualified to lead the facility. Um, anyway, Kerry meets with uh, him and, and makes a case for, for Grace's release and um, and she lays out the misery that Grace had been enduring. And ultimately, Kerry Johnson does win Grace's release from Woodside uh, by the end of 2016. That was her first day. She would have uh, a, a, a garish and awful second day when Grace was 16. Um, and that's, the story begins with um, one of the episodes uh, that happened in 2019 uh inside Woodside for Grace. Um, and, you know, in a, in, a, in a practice that I find baffling to this day, staff at Woodside would film many of the encounters between yeah. staff and the children. Um, <clears throat> and no one was quite sure why it was being done. The uh, staff were told they were, you know, to do it because it would protect them against any claims of mistreatment or whatever. You'd have a record. Um, People who worked there thought it was just a device used by uh, management to, you know, find fault with their care or, or treatment of kids and, you know, run them out. Um, but ultimately, those videos made, you know, 
again and again of these children um, often being, you know, restrained by riot shields and, uh, you know, uh, and men in, in biohazard suits stripping both boys and girls of their clothing uh, ostensibly for their own safety because they were a threat to themselves. Those videos actually become really uh, ultimately dispositive in the legal case against Woodside. When Judge Crawford, the federal judge who, uh, who heard the case brought by disability rights, when he watched those videos, uh, he, you know, he returned very quickly um, and said, you know, that the plaintiffs had met their bar for uh, irreparable harm being done to children. Um, so the, those videos are, are hard to watch. Um, and, um, you know, uh, the state, uh, both DCF and the Attorney General's office, um, you know, fought hard to keep them from the public or even from judges. Um, and, you know, once they, you know, once they're seen, um, they can't be unseen. And it's hard to fathom that, you know, this was allowed to take place. Joe, this is especially difficult, I think, for a lot of us because we know, I know personally, most of the people in this story. And you get to it. Uh, in an unflinching way in an, in a comment from, uh, Bennington Senator Dick Sears, who, I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he basically says, I should have done more. And I, I think there's a lot of that, that theme kind of runs through your story, which is, you know, who was going to step up and deal with this? And it seems that among the adults who had power, nobody was in charge. Well, they, I, I think the most articulate, um, you know, assessment of that uh, was given to me by Kerry Johnson, the yeah. lawyer with the Defender General's office, who would ultimately wind up, you know, her work would ultimately wind up, you know, uh, leading to the closing of Woodside. And she has a take. I'll, I'll just read it to you uh, uh, for the listeners. She said, there is a certain exceptionalism that is baked into the culture here in Vermont. Out of that exceptionalism, it is almost axiomatic that while such things as what took place at Woodside may happen in other places, they cannot happen here. When I talk with people outside the state about Woodside, they always respond the same way. Vermont? Really? That happened in Vermont? No way. How the rest of the country sees us is also how we see ourselves. Because we cannot believe that such things can happen here, they do, and often well, and, and here's another quote from her. Good at putting a stamp of legitimacy on this otherwise completely barbaric practice. Uh, so, Joe, uh, what led you to this story in the minute we have left? And uh, tell us, it comes out today in seven days, right? Yes, it'll be on the stands today, I think, at, uh, starting at 8 o'clock. It, it'll be online uh, at 10 o'clock, I believe. Um, yeah, I mean, look, uh, just, I'll try to tell this quickly. You know, I'm a lifelong New Yorker. Uh, my wife and I and our twin girls moved up to Vermont at the start of the pandemic. Uh, we wound up buying a home and putting our kids in local schools and have become taxpaying Vermonters. Um, and, you know, I, I began to acquaint myself with the local uh, world of journalism in Vermont. I was very impressed by the work done by VT Digger, the nonprofit. Um and, you know, I was stunned by seven days, which is, you know, it's, it's a kind of just an absolute anachronism, beautiful anachronism of a, you know, an all weekly given away for free 
that is actually profitable because of print advertising. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, and I, I, I picked up when I was here a certain amount of what Kerry Johnson was talking about. I'd read stories in BT Digger about, you know, it seemed like people were dying in prison, you know, every other week. And there, there was a settlement announced about elder abuse in which a, a man who had been, you know, uh, placed in a home winds up drowned to death. Um, you know, and I was just saying, well, wow, Vermont, you know, that's not the Vermont I expected to find, but that's my own ignorance. Um, yeah. You know, Vermont is a beautiful and great state, and it's full of wonderful uh, and virtuous and hard, hardworking people. Um, but there are dark corners to it. Um, and, you know, um, this was one of the, the darker corners. Um, uh, okay. And when somebody said, you should look into Woodside, I said, what the hell is Woodside? <laughs> and, you know, a year later, uh, I know quite a bit, although and, not everything. And now we know it all. Joe Sexton, thanks for joining us. Joe Sexton, his story about Woodside is coming out in seven days today. You probably get it online right now. Thank you for joining us, Joe. Uh, next up, we're going to have the commissioner of the Department of Children and Families. You're listening to WDEV. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. And today we're talking about a very, very tough and tragic story being published in seven days. Today, it's called The Loss of Grace, an investigation. It's the story of a young Vermont woman from Orange County who needed help from a system that, according to this article, failed her. It's a trail of tragedy, abuse, lawsuits, government inaction, and ineffectiveness, and the suffering of children at the hands of adults. The author is uh, Joe Sexton, a freelance writer who led Pulitzer Prize-winning teams at the New York Times, and we discussed it with Joe for the last half an hour. One of the good things about being in Vermont is that you, uh, instead of ducking this story, uh, the guy who runs the Department of Children and Families uh, is right here on the show to talk about the story. Uh, and his name is Chris Winters, and he joins us now. Commissioner, welcome. Hi, Kevin. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Sure. I, I want to point out that you were not there during this period. You are only recently the commissioner of uh, of uh, DCF. Um, I pointed out to Joe that, you know, like me, I, I suspect that you know all the people in in the story, from legislators to governors to lawyers to, I mean, I've known Ken Schatz for 25 years, uh, your predecessor. So this uh, story hits close to home. I think it forces us all to look at ourselves and ask what we might have done. But I and I don't know if you've read the story, so I want to. I just want to give you a chance to respond. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. You're right. You know, I do know many of the people involved here, and I think there are a lot of lessons that we can take away from this. I haven't read the story. Um, you know, I was interviewed by Mr. Sexton, and he contacted a lot of people at DCF to get uh, to get information about the story. Um, but I can respond in general terms. Like you said, I've, I've been here about six months as the, the new, still relatively new commissioner of DCF, um, and I've learned a lot. Uh, about Woodside over those six months, it's still it, it has a it has a long shadow that kind of hangs over a lot of the work that we do here, um, and I learn more and more about it every day. And I do want to start, you know, by saying 
that really any lives lost are a tragedy. Um, and, and when you're responsible for children in state custody, um, it's, it's a heavy burden. And I just want to say that I'm, I'm deeply sorry for the children and the families who were affected by what happened at Woodside. And, uh, you know, as you said, I'm, I'm new to DCF, but I'm no stranger to state government. I've been in state government for quite a long time, and I've seen the different ways in which government responds um, to things going wrong. And I think we have to recognize as a state that this system of care for, for our kids who need us the most was broken. Um, it's still broken, and, and that damage was done at Woodside, terrible damage. And we have a responsibility to own that, to stop it, uh, to learn from our mistakes and make sure that it never happens again. And so while all this happened before my time here, I, I still want to bring that experience that I had at the Secretary of State's office and realize that trust in government and trust in our institutions is at an all-time low. So how do you counteract that sort of thing? I believe you operate as though 645,000 Vermonters are looking over your shoulder you're transparent, you're open, you communicate, and you're accountable. And the state doesn't exactly have the best track record when it comes to that, and, and nor does the Department for Children and Families. The, the instinct is to keep your head down and circle the wagons, but that's not how I operate, and that's not how state government should operate. So that's why I'm here today with a, with a commitment to, to making things better for the future. At the risk of t making this into a political science class, because uh, <laughs> you're – I really hear what you're saying, and I, I covered government as a reporter, and you know, yeah. I've been around it forever, and we all see it. We all see the that instinct to uh, turn away, or to cover up, or to or to uh, to not tell the whole story, and it's just an instinct, and it it is, it's it's not that people are bad necessarily; it's that they don't want to expose themselves to scrutiny. Uh, well, there's just all sorts of reasons. And it looks like, according to the story, that that, that, uh, that instinct, which happens across all governments, state, federal, local, uh, it, it seemed to take place here. Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a, it's a really fascinating case study, and we're looking back with, with hindsight. So, yeah. um, you know, take that into account. But what I see around me today are a, a really hardworking staff at the department and in the family service division. They're skilled professionals. They're doing incredibly challenging and emotional heavy lifts every single day. You know, they're dedicated. They're determined to, to make children and youth safer in Vermont. That's why I'm here. I, I, I love the work. I love the mission. I really appreciate the people who are doing this work, but that's not to say that there aren't problems or there haven't been bad actors or incompetence out there or that people don't make mistakes. They do, um, but it's how you respond to those. And, and, and we have to acknowledge that sometimes when we're trying to help people with the best of intentions, we can possibly do them harm. Um, yeah. So there are tons of lessons to be learned from this. I think, and, and, and you know, there are a number of people who are, are processing, have been processing what happened and how we can avoid it in the future. We need to listen to those who report abuse. We need a, a good, solid communication from the folks on the front lines to supervisors to leadership. Um, and we need leadership that listens and then can build coalitions 
and act on it. Because like you said, a lot of people knew this was a broken system. This was not ideal. There were children in that facility who couldn't get the care that they needed in that facility. And the system was designed in a way that it was going to fail. And a lot of people knew about that. Um, but how do you turn that into action? How do you turn that into reform? How do you make sure you have strong oversight and that you don't tolerate abuse? Uh, so could, those are some of the lessons that I think we need to take away to, to make a better system. Is there something specifically that you at the department are doing to, as a kind of an after-action investigation of what happened there, or has that already taken place? Is there anything else for you to discover about what happened at Woodside so you can do things better? You know, I, th- I think I know most of what I need to know about yep. Woodside. Me personally, I think, you know, there were there were HR issues, there were disciplinary actions, um, there's been the lawsuit, there's been uh, a settlement of that lawsuit. You know, those are all, some of those are risks-driven, some of those are, are money-driven, um, which is not what you should be looking at when you're looking at the system of care and how we care for our kids. What we are taking away from that is that, you know, we've, we've learned a lot about secure facilities um, and best practices and trauma-informed practices. What was happening at Woodside was not trauma-informed. It was doing more damage uh, to kids that already had traumatic backgrounds. Um, so, you know, with the lessons learned about secure facilities, we know youth who have significant trauma histories need that trauma-informed intensive treatment and care in a therapeutic setting. So everything I'm seeing before I got here six, seven months ago the turn has been made to we need therapeutic settings. We still need that secure high-end piece of our system that's still missing uh, since Woodside was closed. And there's a reason that Woodside was closed, um, because it was not the appropriate facility and not the appropriate approach to help these kids. We still are missing that high-end system of care with, for the kids with significant trauma histories that are in crisis, Um, But all of that is turning toward a a more therapeutic approach, a lot of community-based treatment, a lot of wraparound services, and we need our high-end system of care back. As um, Dr. Chen, who was the interim commissioner before me, described it, we're we're basically running a hospital without an emergency room. So you can see how that impacts everything else in the system. Um, But just to to turn back one more time, it's those community-based programs, it's trauma-based care, it's a therapeutic approach is what I'm hearing from everybody in DCS now, which was, I think, top of mind with Woodside, but unable to be accomplished in that system. Well, and I think all of us, I mean, if you go back 20 years uh, to the war on crime and Bill Clinton, Mm -hmm. uh, Howard Dean was a, was a, was a tough on crime. Let's build new prisons uh, kind of governor. And we, we got to face the fact that we were wrong, uh, and we did not invest in the kind of therapeutic uh, behavioral interventions that we should have. We're, sounds like we're figuring it out now, but it's going to be a long road back, I suspect. It, it really is. We're trying to stand up a temporary facility, but we've been, you know, kind of turned away in a couple of communities. Um, if, if anything good can come from this, it's to raise awareness that these kids are still out there every single day in our communities. Um, yeah. I, I hope this can serve as a wake-up call that we still have a lot of work to do to serve these kids. 
Okay. Um, we have to learn from Woodside, and we need to do better, and we need our, our decision-making around these kids to be based in, in care and compassion, not on like risk management and, and money. Okay. Commissioner, I want to thank you for coming on. We have to take a break. Uh, you're, we're going to talk about this for another eight minutes or so after the break. You're welcome to stay with us. Uh, if you have to go, we totally understand you. I think you have the busiest job in state government. But uh, that is Department of Children and Families Commissioner Chris Winters, uh, and we'll be back after this break. We are back, and that was a tough 45 minutes. Uh, so to recap, uh, we heard from Joe Sexton, who is the author of a uh explosive story coming out today in seven days about the history of the Woodside Juvenile Detention Facility. Uh, and then uh, it, in which uh, kids were abused. Uh, one, you could argue, died as a result of some of the treatment she received there. Uh, adults knew uh, and did not act as they should have. I know a lot of those people, as I've said. I mean, I've known Ken Schatz for 25 years. He was a top aide to uh, former Burlington Mayor Peter Clavel. Uh, he was the DCF commissioner. I know him to be a dedicated public servant. Um, I know Dick Sears. He's the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, a, a highly respected senator. And I... I know Sears to be that kind of guy uh, who is quoted in Joe Sexton's piece as saying, and again, I don't have it in front of me, but he says, basically, I could have done more or maybe I should have done more. Or, uh, And we talked about this this issue of when you get into government and allegations are brought, there's a there's a system within the government that that we all fall prey to sometimes in which we say we have to protect ourselves. We have to protect the institution. We have to protect uh, from lawsuits. Uh, I think a really good example in Joe Sexton's story is the role of the Vermont Attorney General, who back then was T.J. Donovan. And we can have uh, Charity Clark, the AG, on the on the show to talk more about this, but but, you know, T.J. Donovan's job is to defend state government. So when a lawsuit is brought against state government about the abuses going on at the Woodside facility in Essex, the, 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 the role of the attorney general is to defend against that case. And it is very, very difficult and emotional to see crack lawyers like the attorney general defending practices that in their personal lives, those lawyers probably know are not good. But we have a system in which you go to court once and both sides fight it out. And the theory is that a judge or a jury can make the best decision about how to go forward. So you've got a situation in which the Vermont attorney general's office was defending these practices at some level, and defending the notion, uh, the the protection of the video, which puts all of this on the record. Now, finally, that lawsuit goes to federal court, and federal judge Jeffrey Crawford sees those videos and uh, makes a ruling. But it ta- you know it takes really really long time. I would point out also, uh, if anybody wants to call in about this, by the way. 
244-1777. You can email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Uh, I would point out, and I'm reading from a VT Digger story, the state settled one federal lawsuit earlier this year in February uh, and paid the plaintiffs a total of $4.5 million. Uh, the lawsuit named more than a dozen defendants, including people who worked at Woodside, uh, including DCF Commissioner Ken Schatz uh, and others. Uh, they were represented by uh, lawyer Brooks MacArthur and David Williams. Uh, so the the uh, DCF said that it was pleased to able to reach agreement with plaintiff's counsel on behalf of the state, uh, <clears throat> but... Jason Malucci, a spokesman for Governor Phil Scott, was quoted as saying, we hope that the settlement helps the plaintiffs move forward and build productive futures. Uh, I would say that uh, Commissioner of DCF, Chris Winters, who's been on that job for about six months, who uh, another guy I know fairly well, um, he, he went way further than that statement. Um, again, you know, Malucci's statement doesn't go as far as people would want problem is Malucci's got a got a responsibility to protect the uh, the, the state the integrity of that state agency but but Commissioner Winters just went further than that he apologized he said I'm sorry um, and while no solace to the family of Grace Welch and the others other families whose children suffered at Woodside uh, when a government official says they're sorry, and they're going to do it better. That's a step in the right direction. Uh, that 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 says something more than uh, defending the practices or defending the identity of the agency or the role of the agency. Uh, now that the lawsuits, uh, I, I don't know if they're all uh, have been wiped clean, but now that that federal lawsuit is out of the way. People like Commissioner Winters are now free to take the kind of actions uh, that that we now understand better than we used to. Twenty years ago, we didn't know what trauma was. And today, uh, Chris Winters is talking about trauma-informed behavior and trauma-informed therapy that and that these are children. So... Uh, I, I credit uh, uh, Commissioner Winters for coming on the show and responding and uh, open open ticket to come on this show anytime any government official is welcome to come on this show anytime we welcome them and I give Chris Winters a lot of uh, credit for uh, coming on the show and and uh, and saying I'm sorry um, the, the Woodside I remember looking I remember talking to uh, the temporary, the interim commissioner of uh, DCF, Harry Chen, who was an emergency room doctor um, uh, and member of the legislature and uh, was the health commissioner as well. I, I mentioned Woodside for some reason I can't remember, and he just looked at me and rolled his eyes and shook his head. This is a couple of years ago. Um, a lot of people knew about this, and all of us didn't do enough. I'm Kevin Ellis. We're going to switch gears. We're going to come back and talk about forest gardens with a very special guest. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. (laughs) 